Direction point. Direction point. A Doctor Who Podcast Network. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Doctor Who Literature, the podcast taking you through the world of the Doctor Who novelizations put out by Target Books from 1973 onward in publication order. We're a member of the Direction Point Doctor Who podcast network. My name is Jason, and I'm your host on this journey, this very long journey. I am out of town this weekend, so this is a pre-recorded episode. The interview with producer David Barsky was recorded in Barsky's home in Los Angeles a couple of weeks ago. As you are aware, I had COVID a while back, and I lost a little more than half of our planned family vacation. I did not get on a plane to join my family in Los Angeles until I finally tested negative for the darn thing. You will hear a couple of audio glitches during the interview with Barsky, We recorded in his library, his phenomenal library, about which more during the interview, and we were at times walking around, and it's a large room, so the audio does drop in and out at times if one of us strayed too far from my recording microphone. I did some surgery by amplifying bits of the audio. It's a little bit of an uneven sound at times, but it's a terrific conversation. goes well over an hour, so I do encourage you to stick with it. You will also notice that I still had a pretty significant residual COVID cough at times during the interview, especially towards the end as I was just talking too much. I did try to mute that out wherever possible, but you will hear it. I promise no Barskis were harmed in the recording of that interview. The book we are talking about is Inferno, the 89th Target book. One of my favorites, one of his favorites. As we approach the last 90 days before Doctor Who's 60th anniversary, we do have a new feature on the show. I will be asking all of my guests going forward, what is their favorite TV Doctor Who story of all time? We have a lot of episodes to go before the 60th and a lot of guests, so I hope to hear a lot of interesting answers as I keep asking the question. One last point before we get to my interview with Barsky about Inferno and my audio essay about Inferno. Last week, episode 88, The Aztecs, the original version of that released on the Sunday morning, featured me reading out an audio essay written by Kate Orman. I was finally able to connect with Kate later in the day, and we now have her recording of the interview. I did push that out on Monday, so if you downloaded or listened to the episode after day one, you would have heard her performance. But since that was, I'll be honest, that was my number one episode of all time in terms of first day downloads. So anybody who grabbed that show on the day of its release last Sunday will not have heard Kate's performance. I am going to include it here and now. After Kate Orman, the rest of our regularly scheduled episode 89, Doctor Who Inferno. One bit of late breaking news, Cutaway Comics does appear to be working on an Inferno comic prequel called Unity is Strength. A lot of terrific talent is attached with the making of that comic, and I look forward to finding out more about it 
as the time goes by. Meanwhile, let's get to it. The Aztecs is one of the very first Doctor Who stories, and one for which I have tremendous respect. On a shoestring budget without benefit of video editing or location filming, the production team brought to life a Shakespearean tale of good versus evil. It's a pity, then, that the very basis of the story is a mistake. The Aztecs didn't build tombs, they cremated their dead. And they didn't believe in reincarnation, at least not in human form. Warriors might return to the earth as hummingbirds when they'd finished serving the sun. On screen, there are a number of little boo-boos. The camera colliding with the sacrificial altar in episode one, the mispronunciation of names, the X should be pronounced sh, the little white gloves dangling down from Totoxel's wrists. Someone had obviously seen a picture of an Aztec priest wearing the skin of a sacrificial victim his own hands protruding from the sacrifice's wrists. But none of these detract from the story. It's not really about the Aztecs, but about superstition clashing with compassion. So long as the impression of accuracy is given, actual accuracy isn't so important. However, when John Lucarotti novelised his script in 1984, it turned out that he didn't really know much about the Aztec people after all. For example, quote, it's an Aztec mask of Quetzalcoatl, the sun god, who was driven into exile by Huitzilopochtli, the god of darkness. Page 3. That single sentence contains five errors, six if you include the fact that the televised mask showed Huitzilopochtli's face. Quetzalcoatl, spelt wrong, was not the sun god. Huitzilopochtli, spelt wrong, was. And Quetzalcoatl was driven into exile by the god Tezcatlipoca. Further perusing the tomb, Susan discovers a wall painting of warriors. Quote, From their mouths came bubbles filled with hieroglyphs. Page 4. Unfortunately, the Aztecs lacked writing as well as the wheel. John Lucarotti was probably thinking of the Maya, who did have a hieroglyphic system of writing, or the ancient Egyptians. In fact, he seems to have had the Egyptian pyramids in mind when he added a tomb and, quote, interior, page 20, to Aztec temples which were solid, except for the little godhouses on the top. Totoxel's behaviour, too, is odd. Quote, the high priest picked up the jug, filled the goblet and drank the wine in a single draught, page 17. The Aztecs had no wine, only a drink called octli, made from fermented cactus juice. And to drink it outside of special circumstances was punishable by death. He also goes to, quote, visit the barracks to select a victim when the gods demand blood. Page 21. The Aztecs sacrificed those who were captured during their war campaigns against the other peoples of the Valley of Mexico, and special slaves, not their own warriors. The other tribes, in turn, might sacrifice captured Aztec soldiers. The warriors are portrayed as having metal swords. Quote, the sword was drawn and the tip touching Ian's stomach. The chosen warrior slid the sword back into its scabbard. Page 37. In fact, the Aztec sword was a long, thin wooden club, rather like a cricket bat, studded down the sides with sharp chunks of the volcanic glass obsidian. These bulky weapons couldn't be fitted into a scabbard. There's one memorable scene in the televised story where Ixtar fights with what appears to be a short club with two loops on one end. In fact, it's an atl atl, the equivalent of a woomera or spear thrower. Presumably no one realised what it was. Other little errors are scattered through the text. The steam house, used frequently by the Aztecs to clean themselves, has mysteriously moved inside and become the, quote, bathroom, page 44. 
Criminals were stoned or strangled, not crucified, page 106. And this attempt to sneak Christianity into the book is rather embarrassing, especially given that the conquistadors used religion as an excuse to wipe out the Mexicans and their devil-worshipping civilization. Another confusing point is the extent of the Aztec sacrifices. By 1507, the date given in the novel, large-scale sacrifices were quite normal. The dedication of the great temple in the Aztec capital of Tenochtitlan, 20 years earlier, had cost between 20 and 80,000 lives. Yet Barbara hints that the, quote, thousands who die in a single day were victims of the Aztecs' last ditch attempt to placate the gods and drive off the Spanish, page 51. They were much too busy fighting the Spanish to indulge in mass human sacrifice, though some Spanish soldiers did end up on the altar. The writer W.H. Auden once said that you can't review a bad book without showing off. But none of the above facts are obscure. Most of the information John Lucarotti needed to paint an accurate picture of the Aztecs would have been in a good children's book. And it's a shame he didn't bone up more before putting pen to paper. But the televised story remains a classic example of what Doctor Who can do with two painted backdrops and a handful of shillings. Here's hoping for a prompt Australian release of the BBC video. Well, I wrote that in 1992, and looking back at it, I think I'm extremely cocky to be nitpicking one of the greatest Doctor Who stories. I, uh, I'd love to know what some of the, the sources that John Lucarotti used were for his research. And I'd also like to know how accurate some of my nitpicks are. So anyway, I hope you enjoyed that. P.S. I apologise for my pronunciation of the Aztec names. Hi, I'm Rupert Booth. I am known as Paul Ferry. And my name is Barry Williams. Together, we host Time Ram. Time Ram's a cruel mistress. It's a random number generator. That also. We roll a number from 1 to 13, and that's our doctor. Then 1 to 300 for the story, and then we ram them together. Even if it doesn't make sense. Cruel, I tell you. Time Ram. Putting the wrong doctors in the wrong stories. So you don't have to. You're listening to Doctor Who Literature. Coming to you live from the beautiful San Fernando Valley, it is David Barsky, co-producer of the show. David, welcome to the program, and thank you for letting me in your home. Yeah, welcome to my home, man. Uh, I, I, I love uh, like-minded individuals coming to my house and sitting down in these very chairs. Uh, I, I know you appreciate books, and... Uh, this is, I built this room for this exact reason. I, I, I love science fiction, horror, and fantasy properties, sci- you know, TV, film. And I always wanted a room to reflect that and, and basically hold my books, both my fiction and my nonfiction. And I was like, I, I want to do something sci-fi, but uh, I don't want it cheesy looking, you know. And so I, I, I actually, one, I didn't know what to do. And we, we, we bought this house. And I, I, one day I walked into a lighting store and saw that fan. And for those of you who obviously can't see it, it's, it's this sort of, this turn of the century, uh, Victorian style, if you will, uh, steampunkish fan that has two, basically it comes down from the ceiling and has a light in the center, but has two fans. It's, it's got full brass on it, two fans on either end, and it spins around when it's on. The whole thing rotates. Oh, wow. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's really fun. But I saw that. I was like, that's it. I'm going to do some Jules Verne-esque type of thing. 
for my for my office slash library. And, you know, I got the wallpaper and the, the chandeliers. And if, have you noticed the ceiling? It looks like a steamer trunk. Well, no, it's actually. It's it's. A, oh, I'm sorry you didn't figure that or out. Or the hull of a ship. There you go. It's the interior of a submarine, like the Nautilus. Oh wow! Okay. So I, I hired a muralist to uh, paint this, and you know it's kind of cool. It's like even the like the patina and the etching he did. That that's 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 not 3D. The only thing 3D on on this are the rivets in the panels. He he bought these little discs, these you know, half half spheres, and he glued them on. But everything's painted. So these, you know, this is basically panels, uh, interior panels of a ship or a submarine like the Nautilus. So just to describe the room, you walk in, you have your resolute desk in the middle, and the rest. Well, it's not. I could, that's that's the right hand side. This the right hand side. And the rest of it, uh, the far wall behind the desk is four bookcases, pack of paperbacks. They're all literature. That's the literature section. And where we're sitting in the back is an alcove, and it is nine bookcases with the armchairs. And you have just about every nonfiction book on sci-fi and horror, film and TV that you could imagine. Well, I definitely don't have them all. How I many will books t- do you have total? I have just cracked 2,800 volumes. 2,800. I'm, I'm sitting with your Doctor Who shelf right off to my right. This is incredible. Books here that I didn't even know about. Yeah, it's funny. I I posted. I, I belong to some Facebook group uh, that has genre books. Uh, yeah, and uh, they they post their shelves. You know, I was like, okay, I'm gonna I'm just gonna do it, right? So I literally took pictures of all the cases, all the shelves. You know, and that you know that's not just a shelf. That's a whole cabinet. That every cabinet I have of the, every nine of the cabinets has seven shelves. So the Doctor Who, that's one full cabinet of just Doctor Who. And literally, somebody posted was. I never realized Doctor Who had so many books written about it. Oh, gosh. <laughs> if you only knew, dude. And you have piled up on the floor the um, oh, yeah. the complete history. Yeah, I, I, I'm figuring out what to do with them. I was going to put them maybe on the top of that bookshelf over there, or I do need a couple of standing shelves. Like I have room, you know, maybe over there, uh, definitely in the center, and maybe behind these chairs I'm going to do something. And I think three or four of these books have my name in it. I see you have Time Unincorporated Volume 2. Yeah, of course. I've got a piece in that. You've got The Nth Doctor. My name is in that. I see you've got uh, Graham Burke and Stacey Smith in here somewhere. I've got several there stuff, obviously. I'm, I'm naming outside, outside, outside In, you've written four, right? I've got all those volumes. Ah, I didn't see those. Yeah, I've written for all the Outside Ins except for Twin Peaks. Right next to the uh, Rudatorium books. Uh, oh, yeah. yeah. I'm, in, uh, I'm in both. I've got essays in both of those. Yep. And I've, I've got uh, the other outside ends, the, you know, the, the, the ones that have done it for all the properties as well. Those are on different shelves. I can autograph them for you. Yeah, sure. Don't <laughs> touch my books. <laughs> <laughs> so we are here to ta- today to talk about the novelization of Inferno. We each have our copies on the table. Absolutely. I have the 1984 first printing. Jeez, uh, wow. I probably have something close to that. Yeah, I, yeah, I got the 1984 printing. All right, well, let's not mistake our copies for one another. Do you have... I'm curious to see. Do you have the Lyle Stewart sticker on the back? I do not. See, this bookseller, uh, they, you know, it has all the the the, uh, the pricing. Yeah. Uh, and it's the exact same thing. But they they put the sticker over the USA price that was actually printed on the book. Okay. And, and they put their own sticker. This says 350 not the 295 you got. 
it later went up in the in the late eighties. Lyle Stewart raised the price to three twenty five and then three fifty. You may have bought that in eighty six, eighty seven after the price went up. I literally bought this three months ago on eBay. Oh, okay. And for, for a lot more than three fifty. So the person that you bought it from must have bought it like in eighty seven, eighty eight. Yeah. That's my guess. I I but I did uh I did own a copy. I had every novel as I mentioned before, uh before I shamefully sold them because I'm such a hopeless completionist. I said, oh, those Sayward episodes are never going to be, those those Adams episodes are never going to be. Known. And, of course, here we are today, and I'm out books, and I have to pay thousands of dollars to get them all back. And some would say they hope those Sayward books uh, <laughs> were never written because they were terrible. Yeah, I've heard that. Uh, but, yeah, I, I, I mean, look, the novelizations uh, were glue for the fans for a long time, and they're so important. Well, we are recording in the last days of August 2023. I've just gotten my voice back. We are a little less than 90 days away from the 60th anniversary. What I'm going to be doing in every episode of Doctor Who Literature until the anniversary is I want to find out what your favorites are. You know that at L.I. Who two weeks ago, I recorded a panel on the top 60 of all time as unscientifically chosen by six different fans. I want to get a sense. 60 years of the show... Unearthly Child through Power of the Doctor. Not the best. What is your favorite? What is your favorite story, TV story, out of the last 60 years? Well, I kind of mentioned this on the special we did on Five Doctors. Um, uh, That poster right there tells you what my number one story is. That is the most accurate replica that I've ever seen of the Lee Sen Chang Palace Theater poster from Talon's. And that was designed by Gav Rymill, who does the Missing Episodes podcast, which is phenomenal, by the way. I My jaw dropped when I came into this room and turned the corner, and there was Lee Sen Chang with the Tom Baker scarf hanging on the bookcase right next to it, I should add. Yeah, yeah. I still have to get the Season 18 scarf. I, I've been meaning to do that, to put it on the opposite corner here. The June but, Hudson scarf. Yeah. You ever, you ever walk around Los Angeles wearing your Tom Baker scarf, or is that merely decorative? Uh, that's merely decor- decorative. That has, uh, I don't even know if I've worn it myself, to tell you the truth. Even in the house, you know, frolic around in my underpants. I, I mean, well, it gives me a good idea, though. <laughs> I will tell you that Talons is on my top 60 list. I won't say where. <laughs> uh, those rat bastards of the uh, Doctor Who magazine, I saw it wasn't even their top 20. What happened there? That's got to be some sort of, uh, uh, you know, Donald Trump would be all over that that, uh, that voting. <laughs> well, he would be all over a lot of things, and uh, we all know what happened to him. So, Well, nothing yet. <laughs> <laughs> Give it time. He does not appear to be a Doctor Who fan, as far as I could tell. I don't think he has that level of taste. No, not even close. Trust me. Not that I've met the man, and I hope never to. I paid rent to him. Did you really? I want that money back. Well, wait a minute. Was it a good place, though? I mean, was it a fair landlord? So here's the thing. He has the, or he had these luxury high-rise buildings in Manhattan. Of course. However, before, as you know, he inherited his business. Mm-hmm. So his father owned several buildings in the outer boroughs. <laughs> Every building was named for his father, Fred Trump. So every building began with the letter F. Oh, sure. So I rented a building in South Brooklyn. I won't say which building, but it was a Trump family-owned building. And I was living there when The Apprentice debuted. Mm. And The Apprentice, as you know, Trump was essentially broke, and he was rescued from poverty by a TV producer named Mark Burnett. Of course. Who cast him in the role of a billionaire impresario who was one of the most sophisticated men in the world. 
And that TV show eventually got him the presidency because people thought that the character he was playing on the show of course. was a real person. Yeah, don't trust anything you see on TV, folks. Heaven forbid. Yeah, well, no, it's, 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 I don't know how widely this is known, but, you know, the whole, oh, here we go on this tangent, sorry. Uh, he, he, you know, the, the whole run for presidency was originally a publicity stunt. Right, it was a way of getting more money out of NBC. Yeah, of course. And uh, I actually knew an audio mixer who was following Trump. He was hired to follow Trump. And, and he told me that, well, well, in the middle of the thing, they're all like, well, wait a minute. I'm actually getting some traction here. Maybe I should really do this. How fucking scary is that? <laughs> the, appre- the original Mark Burnett Apprentice was a good show. And he was playing an interesting character on it. But I was in this... It was not an impoverished... It was a racist building. You had to be white to, to, to rent there. So even even that was pretty obvious. The point is, I was sitting in this, you know, South Brooklyn, very non-glamorous building, laughing my head off because the guy that he was playing on TV didn't match the building that I was living in. After about a year of living there, the Trump family sold the building, and I couldn't understand why they would sell the building. It wasn't until the New York Times did their expose 15 years later. It was a massive tax scheme to avoid inheritance tax. Well, so they most sold, of it is, isn't it? <laughs> so they sold everything at a quote-unquote tremendous loss. Oh, yes, of course. Yeah. So that was my paying uh, rent to uh, <clears throat> the Orange Fellow story. But getting back to Talons of Wang Chiang, what about it makes it your favorite? Uh, just the depth of the story. I mean, look, it's, it's no secret they, they, you know, it was, you know, the swan song for Hinchcliffe and for Holmes, and they put their all into it. I, it just, I, I, I just love the sets. I, I, Victorian England, how can you go wrong there? Or is it Edwardian? I don't even know. Anymore. It was Victorian. Victorian, yeah, of course. Edwardian is 1901 to oh, no, That's right, that's after, yeah, that's right. After Victorian passed on. So, this was 1880s, right? Something like that? Uh, yeah, they never give a year on screen. Yeah. But I think, yeah, somewhere in the late 1880s, I believe. But I, I you know, how can you, you know, the, the Holmesian aspect of it, the Sherlock Holmesian, I mean. Yes. Uh, in which it was blatant enough, and who cares? It was fun. Uh, and uh, the performances are all excellent. I mean, you know, uh, Henry Gordon Jago and, and you know, uh, John Bennett. I mean, they're, they're all freaking amazing. It's so much fun. It's great. And Mr. Sin is just so evil. It creepy as hell. Yeah, I mean that's one of the scariest things when I was a kid. Ever, I didn't. Not a lot scared me, especially in Doctor Who. But I was really, really afraid of Mr. Sin when I first saw him. And there aren't too many actors who've managed to get a fifty or sixty year career out of a specific skill set. Deep Roy has been working continuously. Yeah. For decades, and Talents was early days for him, but yeah, he's managed to parlay that into an incredible career. Not just in sci-fi, but he's been. You know, essentially in everything. Isn't he doing like some reality food show now? I did not him, know that. Yeah, I follow him on Instagram. He's like in Italy eating. And I'm like, what is this? Wow. And I, 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 you know, I didn't pay much, I haven't paid much attention, but I think it's like just happened or just ended or something like that. I don't know if it's, it, it, but they were shooting it. And I, I think that's what it was. Maybe I'm completely wrong. If they do another season, you're going to have to get your hat on the ring as showrunner. Yeah, man, I, I do. I, 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 I know my food shows, you know. You would ace that interview. Oh God! Did you bring out that poster? <laughs> yeah, I know more more about Deep Roy than anybody wants to. <laughs> and it's also David Maloney's final oh, Doctor Who as director. One of the greatest directors. There is. One of the greatest for, for the show. Absolutely. Um, you know, uh, 
what can you say? I he's one of these guys though. Uh, you know, he he does for the most part. He does really great in the studio. I I don't think. I mean, he did Planet of the Dogs, right? Yes. Yeah. I I think he kind of fell down in the studio in that one, but he, but it's his exterior film stuff. I mean, you look at uh, Genesis the Dogs, uh, the classic opening scenes of Genesis the Dogs. I mean, it's just, Jesus Christ, he, he he's really great. The, I love Maloney. The War Games, yes. Episode one, scene one, the TARDIS materializes on location as reflected in a puddle of mud. Yeah, that's one of my favorite shots in the entire classic series. Brilliant. Yeah, that's David Maloney. Brilliant. Yeah. Now he's up there um, with you know Douglas Canfield, of course. Um, I, I he, they had a lot to do with the look of the show in the seventies. Uh, everything just came together in the seventies for the show. It really did. Uh, it really, it really gelled. And you know, as you know, we're going to talk about a season seven show, which crazy season seven is basically a, every single serial is a pastiche of Quatermass in some form or the other. But who cares? Quatermass is one of the greatest science fiction properties of all time. Every serial in season seven is better than the one before. Yes. Spearhead from Space, spoiler alert, I couldn't put all four stories from season seven in my top 60. Some stories in my top 60 are there to represent other stories because they can't all be historicals. They can't all be season seven. They can't all be Dalek stories. I had to make some painful choices. Spirit from Space is the shortest of the four. I've seen it, I think, too many times, and I own too many copies between the VHS oh, sure. and the DVD and then the re- uh, remastered DVD and then the special Spearhead-only Blu-ray. Oh, yes, of course. I've paid too much for that story over the years. It's not, I think, one of my top 20. It's not in my top 60 at all. Silurians, I can't watch it over and over again because it's very dark, but Silurians is a phenomenal story. Ambassadors and Inferno are both high up in my top 60, as we'll find out in November. Yeah, I, I gotta say, I, 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 as soon as you said that, I said, yes, I agree with you, but I've always felt Ambassadors is is, is fourth place. Uh, I think there's a little bit too much runaround and repetition in it, um, even more so than Inferno, but Inferno is my number one, and it's, Inferno is probably in my top five of all time. As I was watching... Inferno in the spring of 2021 because you know I started my pilgrimage October 2020 yep and the traction that got me on Twitter indirectly created this podcast so that Twitter pilgrimage was huge for me personally starting with Unearthly Child and Cave of Skulls October 26th to 27th 2020 I just kept going man I had to take a break because I was waiting for the season 8 Blu-ray to come out and I ordered my copy from Katie Manning's web store and I got the region too. So I took a break in between War Games and Spearhead. That was one of my few breaks on the pilgrimage. By the time I got to Inferno Part 1, I realized this is the best script, Inferno Part 1, in Doctor Who's first seven years. Because every line of dialogue in Part 1 has a double meaning, yeah. and it's reflected later in the story, which is a genius level of writing that Doctor Who wasn't doing up until that point. So Inferno was clearly my number one. Other stories later surpassed it, but it is still in my top five or ten, as we'll find out in November. Inferno, well, I'll let you tell the rest of the story. Why is Inferno so great? Oh, my God. I don't think there... I I, I don't think there's another entire serial of Doctor Who that sustains the level of intensity 
that Inferno does, with episode six being the most intense thing that classic Doctor Who ever, ever aired. It's insane. It's so great. And and again, you're talking about the writing, Don Howden or Don Hoffman. I, I you know I've heard it several ways. Who knows these days? But um, great writer. He's you know a screenwriter. He did a lot of film. Uh, I got a funny story about him too. Uh, Quick trivia question. Yes. He was married to Pick Sanlim, mm-hmm. who was then an actor in Mind of Evil the following year. That's right. Another great story. They had a daughter. What is their daughter's connection to the Doctor Who universe? Wow, that's a that's a that's a good question. I have no idea. Also an actor. She was in a two-part Sarah Jane Adventures. No kidding. Seriously. Oh, I did not know that. I only saw a couple of Sarah Janes. Um, but, yeah. Um, um, yeah, Pix and Luke became very famous in, in, in England, of course. And he, You know who, who his best friend was? Who? Peter Cushing. Peter Cushing. My favorite actor of all time. Can't imagine why. Yeah, they, you know, obviously he was a big Hammer star. I'm just going to say that out of all the books behind you, I'm sure Peter Cushing's name appears in about 20%. I have several books dedicated to Peter Cushing alone. So, um, but, and maybe 10 years ago, I was fooling around on eBay. And I came, I was looking for Peter Cushing stuff. And I came across... um, a set of, I believe, Crimean War figurines that Peter Cushing actually painted and made. Peter Cushing painted and made Crimean War figurines. He 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 was an avid collector and, and maker of uh, miniatures, war uh, soldier miniatures. I was today years old when I learned this. Yes, and the set was gifted uh, from him to Don Howden. Wow. Yes. And it was missing a couple figurines. And at the time, I think it was at around 600 something dollars And I was I was so ready to pull the trigger. Uh, it, you know, it was an actual, you couldn't buy it now. You had, a, you had a bit on it. And I'm like, Jesus Christ, do I really need to correct, collect more stuff? And I was like, what am I going to do with these things? I was on the fence. And I never did <coughs> pull the trigger. Wow. Uh, but that would have been such a cool thing. To have in this library a shelf of Peter Cushing figurines. Yes. Give it to him by Don Houghton. Yeah. No, opposite way. Other way. I, I believe Cushing made him and, and gave him to Don Houghton. Yeah, I, gave him, I believe that was the. the and they wind up on eBay. Yeah. So you have that was the other thing. I was just not sure of the authenticity either, but given what I know about Cushing, yeah, it's probably true. So Don Houghton writing this story is on a whole different galaxy compared to everybody else, but the script editor and the person who commissions it is Terrence Dix. There's the famous story. Probably apocryphal, but I'm sure there's a kernel of truth to it. Terrence mentioned it on just about every audio commentary ever. He tells Malcolm Hulk, for season seven, we're going to have the Doctor exiled on Earth. Malcolm Hulk says, you've reduced yourself now to two stories. Alien invasion or mad scientist. They then put a twist on those because Silurians, the humans are the alien invaders. Mm Mm-hmm. Ambassadors of Death, the alien invaders are good guys being misused by fascists. And Inferno was a mad scientist story with a twist. It is reportedly Terrence Dix who decided that Inferno needed to have this subplot in the middle in the parallel universe. Mm -hmm. How prescient is that, and what does that fascist parallel universe add to our enjoyment of the story? I, I think it's everything. A lot of people actually detract. Not a lot. I, I've read recently a few people uh, detracting the whole thing. So it's, it's sort of like you're telling the same story twice in the same in the same. Story. But it doesn't work otherwise. I, I totally agree. 
it adds so much more stakes. Um, you don't mind seeing, well, you do sympathize. I, should, I shouldn't say that. You, you, you do sympathize with all the fascists, except for maybe uh, the brigadier, because he just he's out for himself. And he doesn't care who else dies, and he wants to go home with the doctor no matter what. And, uh, but you do care about, you know, um, was it unit leader? Uh, no, what was, what was, what was Liz's... Uh, Sec- section, section leader, leader yeah. Section leader. And Bethel Shaw. was under section, section under leader or something like that. Platoon under leader. Platoon under leader. So, anyways, you know, you, you do sympathize with with her, especially because she starts turning a corner, and uh, as well as Petra, um, Doctor. Well, she's a doctor in the parallel that, universe. That's right. That's right. Um, Forgive Williams, right? Doctor Williams. Yeah. Uh, but anyways, uh, have there been any bigger stakes? You see that the same actions in, in in the fascist parallel world literally destroy the planet. That has never happened in Doctor Who. You see Earth destroyed, and the same action could happen in the Doctor's own quote unquote world. So it's like, oh God, he really needs to fix things. We see how bad it could get, and we've never seen that before. And I got to tell you though, I think Episode Seven is kind of a letdown. You know, I don't know why. It, it's like just because that episode six is so amazing. Let's talk about the cliffhangers. Oh, okay. I, I That's all I want to talk about. Episode three. They're all double, at least. Episode three, the doctor sneaks his way into the drill head. He notices that the computer is broken, and he knows why. Mm-hmm. Because if Professor Stallman broke it in his universe, as sure as eggs is eggs, Stallman must have scrambled it in this universe. He tries to repair it. Platoon underleader Benton comes to him with a machine gun. Either step away or I shoot you here and now. Let's talk about this cliffhanger. John Levine. He was an extra. Douglas Canfield sees something in him. Gives him a big part. He gives John Levine this cliffhanger. John Levine must have had the time of his life. I mean, on this on this serial. This this is this is when he's like, oh my god, I made it. I get to play this goofy werewolf, which was a hell of a you know. But he he's used to being monsters anyway, being a yeti and all that. Not a Cyberman, yeah, yeah. Cyberman, of course. But my God, he has so much scenery to chew here, and he does it very well. I love it when the Venusian karate hits him, and he, his yelp when he goes down is so <laughs> great. It's one of my favorite things in this episode. But this is the story that makes him. He has a small part in the invasion. Right. Also, Douglas Canfield. Right. He has a very small part at the end of Ambassadors. Inferno is the first story that presents him as our best friend. Mm-hmm. And then he immediately goes to being the bad guy at the episode 3 cliffhanger. And all of a sudden, he was so good in parts 1 and 2 that you suddenly buy it. It's true. It, it, the funny thing about the, the pattern with... I'm not going to say the final episodes of you know the Pertwee seasons were the only ones where you saw a lot of Benton. But if you look at the next season with the demons... You know, he gets a good role there. Unfortunately, they did him dirty in, in the Time Monster, another finale. But uh, <laughs> it's still, you know, he gets something to do. You know, it's supposed to be a bit comedic, but uh, it's it, it's weird how it's always the final. I mean, obviously, though, Barry Letts had more to do with those finales than the other episodes. Yeah, because Barry, Barry Letts writes the last four. Yeah, this is the only right. finale he didn't write, but yes. he... He directed parts of this when Canfield had his heart attack. That's true. That is true. All right, so that's the part three. Part four, Cliffhanger. I showed this at L.I. every year. I didn't show it this year because it's it's been over, overused by me. But Douglas Camfield camera scripts were military precision. Mm-hmm. The vision mixer must have collapsed in exhaustion 
after cutting this together live in studio, that episode four cliffhanger as they're counting down to Penetration Zero. Yep. This was done in 1969. They probably shot it. It's amazing. Definitely my favorite cliffhanger of the serial, if not of the entire Pert Weed era. It's my second favorite of the serial. Yeah. Uh, well, the first one is... The, the only problem with, 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 with the cliffhangers, and it's a small one, they're very similar. Something is about to blow in, 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 in the facility, and someone's pointing a gun at somebody. <laughs> yeah. So, but there are all these double cliffhangers, and it's just amazing. The way, I, I remember when I first realized that, probably the second time I saw this, I was like, oh my God. This is one of the most intense cliffhangers I've ever seen. This is, you know, back in the 90s, maybe the second. That's probably the third time I've seen it. And I was like, this is great. This is so clever. And the editing, um, the editing is so, so intense in in this, throughout this whole serial. serial. And it's one of the reasons why I chose this book to do on this podcast, to see how Dix could really translate it into prose. And we'll find out shortly. Yes. I won't get ahead. I won't get ahead of myself. Episode 5, Cliffhanger, kind of disposable. The werewolf shoves his hand through a glass. Sure, sure. Not, not, not your more memorable one. Yeah. The episode 6, Cliffhanger, is the end of the four-part fascist universe mm-hmm. cycle. I'll let you do the talking. Because I know what I'm going to say. Well, it's it's very interesting. Um, I The characterizations in that fascist, fascist universe are some of my favorite. And I think the subplot, believe it or not, heaven forbid I say this about Doctor Who... But the Sutton and, and Dr. Williams thing, you see them actually develop as a couple throughout those four episodes. And it's really nicely done. I, it's, like, it's like, you know, sure, he, he walks in with all the male machismo he could possibly not want, right? <laughs> you know, and, 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 and she's standing her ground, you know, as a woman of the time and, and, and one of the leaders in, in this facility. He wants to borrow her, rattle off a couple yeah, of letters. Yeah, of course. It's, it's, they're starting on polar opposites. But you see them gradually come to a consensus as as she is is as he realizes he has to back down and and, and understand this world better. What I mean by world is you know he's coming in from an oil rig and he's an engineer from that kind of world. male dominated world exactly. But she's also seeing that he's probably right about my boss. And 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 you and 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 by the time you know and what is it the, the was the fifth or yeah it's the fifth episode. Uh, you know, they really come together. And the same thing happens in the world the Doctor is from, where, you know, they didn't have to put that code at the end where he's basically said, oh, I'm glad I didn't waste my time here after all. <laughs> that was a bit on the nose. When we already saw, it was very, you know, it's like, hey, you know, when she, you know, grabs him and says, hey, look, I'll, I'll, I'll take care of the of, of, of um, Stallman. And, he, okay, you, you butter him up and I'll go in for the kill or whatever he says. It's like, okay, now they're a team. And it, it, it works so well. Their character works so well. These two, you know, I'm not going to say ancillary players, but they're definitely... Um, you know, characters we'll never see again in Doctor Who, and we know it. But their arc is so wonderfully scripted. And it comes to fruition in the fascist England. That's correct. That's where the bulk of the romance happens. Absolutely. But but we understand, you know, because there's obviously parallels between the whole world, and we understand why they get so close together in the final episode of the serial. But going back to the the actual end. Cliff, the cliffhanger. The, yeah, the cliffhanger. <sighs> I mean... You know, it's 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 shocking to think that a place you're sort of familiar with is going to be obliterated. And Doctor Who never loses. No. Season 1 through Season 7, Doctor Who, with the possible exception of Dalek's Master Plan, mm-hmm. 
Doctor Who always saves the day. Yeah, and then he became Peter Davison, and it was all different. But <laughs> well, thank I, you, Eric Sayward. Yeah, man. right. Of course. But no, you're absolutely right. It's like he couldn't save these people, and even though they weren't, it wasn't you know the society that he would like to have seen occur on any planet. Um, he knows that there's value in, in in their lives, and and I think you know the Doctor can always change political governments he's done he's done that a million times we've seen it before he doesn't he doesn't care he understands that humanity is more important than any, any level of politics and Paul Cornell outspoken critic of John Pertwee at least he was in the 90s mm-hmm. in one of the early new adventures that Paul Cornell wrote the doctor says that when he gets to the parallel universe and sees the face of Big Brother yeah he said it was one of the faces that he was offered at trial so at least in Paul Cornell's headcanon, the big brother who runs fascist England in Inferno is an alternate incarnation of the Doctor. Okay. This is the idea of Paul Cornell, age 23. I get it. Um, it's not officially canon. Yeah. But it's, it's, it's a way of working into the, reading more into the Inferno universe. Because the Doctor doesn't have a parallel in that world. Paul Cornell gives him one. Oh, I see. That uh, makes a lot of sense, I guess. It's Jack Kine on the poster. Yeah. But in Paul Cornell's headcanon, Jack Kine is a... Alternate third doctor, one of the faces he was offered at the War Games trial. Well, I didn't see that face pop up when. Uh, Neither did I, and I and I've checked. Yeah. <laughs> oh gosh. Oh man. Well, I gotta say, you know, Paul. I, I don't. You know, um, I don't. I can't blame Paul specifically for this reference, but it, it became one of these. You know, as you can see, I'm really into the history of the genre with all these books around us. I never would have guessed. Yeah. And you know, with your, with your bespoke steampunk ceiling. Yes, of course. But whatever the case, um, you know. So I love understanding influences and and where you know on on things and see how how um, the genre evolves. But as you know, as we said, look, Quatermass is a huge influence in this era of Doctor Who, and maybe a little bit prior to that. However, in the discontinuity guide, one of the things they list, one of the films they list as influencing this serial was a film called uh, The uh, the Day the Earth Caught Fire. And I I never understood that. And I'm like, it has nothing to do with what's going on in this. Maybe they've never seen that movie, but it, but I've seen it, I've seen it first published in that book and I've seen other fans reference this, that particular movie as influencing the, you know, the, 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 uh, the happening. <coughs> of the and I'm like, this, it's, it's not even close. Day that was caught fire stars the great William McKern, and it's about um, nuclear bomb testing, knocking the Earth off its axis and spinning it towards the sun. Which Twilight Zone? Yeah, did yes. Season the Midnight three, Sun, the Midnight Sun, of course. One of the best Twilight Zones ever. Really great. That one freaked me out too when I was a kid. But anyways, there is a movie that was just made a few years after. Um, uh, the uh, the uh, the day the Earth caught fire called Crack in the World, and it's about harnessing energy in the mantle of the Earth's mantle and getting towards the the, the molten core, and they drop a nuclear bomb down a shaft to try to harness it, and then the world breaks apart. <coughs> I think wow. I think that I mean there was other things that obviously there was real there was real digging there was real drilling, uh, the molehole uh, experiment and all that kind of stuff. Right. But as far as films go, you watch Crack in the World and you're gonna say, "Holy crap, this is Inferno." That was like 1965, I believe. Huh. 
surprise discontinuity guy missed that. Yeah, you know, look, but it's, it becomes one of those things, you know, like, unfortunately, it became, you know, it's a minor thing in, in fan wisdom, but I saw that, it, you know, that other people referenced that. You know, it, it's, it's like, you know, uh, who was it who said, that, you know, Peter Hanning's book, what was it, Bentham, in that, who said, uh, uh, the gunfighter is the worst Doctor Who serial ever. That was Jeremy Bentham. Jeremy, yeah, it was Bentham, yeah. And as we are sitting here in your wing chairs, I have... Celebration is at my fingertips. Yeah. And I've just stopped and retrieved this continuity guide from the top shelf. And I see you have a you have a bookmark. You literally have your bookmark at the Inferno page. Because I probably read it two days ago. Yeah. Yeah. Roots, the Quatermass serials, the installation setting, men turning into monsters, race memory... 1984 in the Star Trek episode Mirror Mirror, the fascist parallel Earth. Of course. The Day the Earth Caught Fire. Yep. It's a Wonderful Life. Sure. That's a bit of a stretch. I think so. John Wyndham's Random Quest. Well, John Wyndham is basically, you know. Yeah. I mean, he's... Early draft of Doctor Who. Yeah, absolutely. I love John Wyndham stuff. The Troubleshooter's not familiar. Doppelganger, not familiar. Doppelganger is, I believe, a Jerry Davis movie. Jerry Anderson, too, Jerry Davis. Jerry Anderson movie. Conan Doyle's When the World Screams. Yep. And the Doctor sings La Donna Immobile. Yeah, I mean, those are minor. Those last two are very minor things, of course, you know, because, you know, that's the sound of the earth screaming out as a rage. That came right from that Conan Doyle uh, story. Given that Paul Cornell was an outspoken critic of the Pertwee era, the bottom line, by equal measure, is a horror tale, a political fable, and a love story. Has there ever been a better scene in Doctor Who than the reflective so free will is not an illusion after all moment? Well acted and beautifully written. This is one of the best stories ever. But uh, now they usually put their initials after the entries. Did, did he write that? Uh, they don't do that in the discontinuity. Oh, they, oh, really? I thought they had. My mistake. I don't know if that was him or Topping or Day. It sounds like Paul Cornell, but it's hard to tell sometimes. Well, well, does it sound like him if he didn't like the the Pertwee era? I Must love that story. Well, listen, it's a great one. I, 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 I look at I. Everybody has their right to their opinions. Uh, I just don't understand people who don't like this story, though. It's so intense and so well written for many reasons. Absolutely. As a kid, I was just mesmerized. And it wasn't even so much by the fascist parallel Earth stuff in the part six cliffhanger, which is literally the end of the world. Mm -hmm. These aired not on my local PBS at 7 p.m., 25 minutes a night, but these aired in 1985 on New Jersey Network. They were doing Omnibus starting at 11 o'clock Saturday night. Wow. I'm 11, 12 years old. I don't necessarily have a bedtime on Saturday night at that age, but I'm not going to make it much past midnight because I'm not used to staying up late at that point in my life. So I wasn't always able to watch Doctor Who on Saturday night because we only had the one TV with the cable. And if my parents wanted it, they took precedence. They didn't mind giving me 7 p.m. on a weeknight, but 11 o'clock on Saturday night was their time. So I had to wait for them to be to either not be home or what have you. I was able to watch the first hour of Inferno. And it was the green dish detergent, which turns the guy into a monster. That's what got me. Oh. And it's so beautifully depicted on the cover. Ian Fairbairn oh. turning into a mutant. This is one of the best Target covers. I mean, you wouldn't want to see it in public. It's pretty gross. But it's a terrifically gripping cover. Because you have literally the sky is orange and red and on fire. Yeah. And you have Ian Fairbairn turning it, and his coat is scorched green with the slime. So that was my entry to the story. And well, then I discovered all the other aspects to it as I got a little bit older. 
Uh, let me tell you, was it the first Pert Wii that you saw? No, I would have seen most of Spearhead. I saw the first hour of Solorians. I saw nothing of Ambassadors of Death. This was my third Pert Wii. Well, it was my first. And wow. you know how gripping it was for me. Uh, you know, my primary PBS station was Channel 2 in Boston. However, they didn't have the Pert Wii's yet. Channel 11 in Durham, New Hampshire did. And they were running the omnibus at like at 2 p.m. on a Saturday. Oh, wow. Yeah. But New Hampshire was further away. However, there were so few people watching television, I could occasionally get it with my rabbit ear TV in my bedroom. So I, I swear to God, I saw probably 75% of what I saw was snow. Uh, I watched the whole thing, but most of it was snow. I could, it, it, I could catch glimpses of it, but the audio was weird. You know how with snow you get that crackling? Yeah. You've seen Poltergeist, right? Of course. Yeah, we all have. But it, it didn't do that. It snowed, but it was the audio was perfect. And kids today will never understand the struggle of trying to watch an out-of-town nope. UHF station. Yep. And you have to make sure the TV is pointing in the right direction. Oh, yeah. You put tinfoil on, on the rabbit ears to make it get better. I was stuff. constantly adjusting and watch Doctor Who. Uh, the war games, when I did the war games that way on Channel 11, my God, uh, I only saw the opening flashes of the thing, and, I, and that was about it. <laughs> but I could hear it all. Uh, but the interesting thing is that was the first Pertwee I saw because uh, that channel wasn't running the black and whites or incomplete episodes. So that was this was the first fully intact Pertwee. Because um, bl- Solorians was only black and white in the eighties, and Ambassadors yeah. was only black and white in the eighties. And there was something up with with Spearhead. I forgot what it was. Maybe it was a, a poor print because of the film. I don't know. But they didn't run that one either. Huh. So Inferno was the first one they run. Yes, it was because I was there for it. Trust me. And I was Dynasty Pro. It's the first part we ever seen. Yeah, it wasn't my first, but it grabbed me the most in those early days. And then I got the novelization. I got it sometime in 1985, and I know this because Christmas 85, my family and my mother's older sister's family, we were on Long Island. They were in suburban New Jersey. We met in the middle. We spent a week at Christmas in the 42nd Street Hyatt, which used to be the Commodore Hotel. It was purchased by Donald Trump in the 70s right next to Grand Central Station. And we stayed in that hotel, and then we walked, my father and I walked from 42nd Street down to East 11th Street and 2nd Avenue to what was then a Yiddish-language theater. It is now a movie theater. Same movie theater where I saw Day of the Doctor on the big... Sorry. Yeah, Day of the Doctor on the big screen in 2013. Oh, wow. But we were in town to see a Yiddish-language show called The Golden Land about the Yiddish immigrant experience. And... My father and I walked all the way down, and we stopped by Forbidden Planet, the original location in Union Square. It's moved a couple of times. And he bought for me books 98 and 99, The Invasion and the Crotons, which had just come out. Mm. So I got those in paperback. But Inferno, book 89, was came out about a year before that. So I, I bought Inferno with me to read on the trip in the hotel room. And then later I get Crotons and The Invasion the same week, so I had other books to read. But I remember reading this in 1985 in a Donald Trump hotel, which I believe was about to be uh, either closed or demolished or turned into something else. So that hotel doesn't have much time left, like Inferno. <laughs> but I remember reading this book in 1985, and I remember reading it over and over again, acting out the scenes. This book, the Terrence Dix version, because I hadn't seen the complete TV yet. I don't want to see the first hour. The book grabbed me. I'll ask you now, how does the book hold up 
today, 2023? Well, look, like I said, I I chose this book because I love the serial so much, and it, it, it the pacing is so amazing, the editing is so amazing, and this is probably the best Terrence Dix book I've, I've read. Period. It's also, I guess, you know, I mean, it's it's probably the lengthiest Dix I've ever had. I don't know. That's surprising because Spearhead is much longer. Day of the uh, Daleks is much longer. Well, this is I, only 120 pages of oh, text. Oh, I guess Day of the Daleks is much. Okay, I've read. I've read. I've read. Those were his first two. Those go on for uh, okay. quite a ways. But still, whatever the case, you know, it really suits the serial well. And I'm 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 wondering if it's just Dick's writing style anyway, um, because you know he as he famously just went by the shooting scripts and and that makes for a faster read. He doesn't wax poetic about you know. <laughs> Tapestries, you know, on walls like you know, Anne Rice or something. Oh you know, gosh! Yeah, no, but seriously, I, I think the way the the, the serial is paced, his writing style really suits it, and it, it, and this book moves. You know, he omits a few things, uh, but not a lot. He doesn't. What he doesn't do is he doesn't jog back to the original world very much. Like the like, he doesn't have Liz just checking in on the doctor to see if he comes back. We, that's not necessary. It's there. Pages 104 and 105, he takes all those scenes and yes. converts them into a single yes. page summary. Right. But he also doesn't, I, correct me if I'm wrong, but I, he doesn't flash back to the accident uh, that, uh, what's his name has, uh, when when he's being uh, dr- driven off course. That's a long, Keith. right, yeah, it's yeah. a long studio scene. Yeah. It's him and the driver having yeah. a long argument. Yeah, right, but... The way he does it, though, he has like there's some recollection of the brigadier looking into it, right. in, like in the final chapter or something. like you that. You need that on television to get right. your 25 minutes in. It would completely destroy the pacing of a book yeah. about the end of the world. Smartest thing he ever did in this book. Although you know, it's funny he has he's so pacey in his writing just because he he's just he, he I'm not gonna say he's taught, but he's just so lean, you know. Uh, and the fact that he eliminated that and very little else. It, it, Tells me he's look at he's a smart guy. Look, at, uh, Terrence Sticks. Uh, for all I will detract from his, I I, I I do I bash his writing every now and then. He's not the greatest writer because you know look I read a lot of books I, I read all the classics. But it's but I've always said he's probably the number one person to ever work on the show, mm. and because he you know you know just because of his influence in the seventies, not to mention the sixties uh, for the final season at least of the sixties. Um, you know, he's up there with Verity Lambert and, for better or worse, you know, uh, John Nathan Turner, the, as far as their influence goes. show. And look, the fact that he wrote all the, the bulk of the novels, he did so much for the show. And that was very important to fandom at the time, who couldn't see the serials otherwise. Page 74 is the episode for Cliffhanger, mm-hmm. which is an incredible bit of work for Douglas Canfield. I was, I'm going to tell you right now, I was so, that was the main reason why I wanted to read this, that very Cliffhanger. This page... I'm not going to count because I'll lose track. There is no paragraph on this page that is longer than three lines. Most of this page is single-sentence paragraphs. I am generally not in favor of that style of writing. But when you're doing it in a 120-page children's book where other paragraphs are between eight and ten lines, this page sails by. If you want to reenact the cliffhanger in your living room at age 12 and you want to read this out loud, this is an incredible way of taking Campfield's immaculate camera scripts and converting it into prose. So this page looks unlike any other Terrence page because it's 
short paragraph, one after another. And he uses italics for the countdown. Yep. And the chapter literally ends with the countdown. And it's this is possibly one of the best pages that he ever wrote. I mean, it, 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 it is what you see on screen. I mean, that's what he usually did but uh, for any of his books. But it just works so well. Such an important, such a love serial. The fact that his writing style it just... It just it accommodates it. It's just so bizarre to me, really. I was I, I was I was up for a letdown. I, I was preparing for a letdown when I read this book because you know I, a lot of the books that I've read, even for this podcast of his, I would I, I've been disappointed with for various reasons. This is almost perfect, almost perfect. I have gone back and forth on this book. When I read this during my Twitter pilgrimage, remembering that I loved it as a kid. I was disappointed in it in 2021 because I thought it didn't capture the intensity of the TV serial. Mm. But I didn't write a review of it at the time for the, for uh, Stacy Smith's ratings guide. So usually for this podcast, if I've already written a review for the ratings guide, I'll just read the review out and do slight edits. I didn't have that to fall back on here, so I reread the book anew to write my audio essay, which you'll hear in a few minutes. I fell in love with it again on this reading reading it over seven nights, episodes one through seven. So the book, I enjoyed it, then I didn't enjoy it, and then I enjoyed it again. Even though he's cut material out, I think it works in the name of pacing. I think some of those scenes, again, you have to have padding. If you're doing a low-budget show in a small studio, 25 minutes a week in a serial format, it's not a feature film. There has to be repetition from week to week Mm because you have to accommodate viewers who might have missed episode three or episode five. Absolutely. And you have to have long dialogue scenes without regulars in them, so they have time to do costume changes or get across the studio. So that scene between Keith Gold and the driver is a necessary scene in the visual language of 1970 television before we were born. It wouldn't work in the book. He cuts it out, and it makes the book better. Yeah. Because if you're reading this book with a bunch of single-sentence paragraphs a propulsive narrative, then you stop for a four-page circular dialogue between a tertiary character and an extra, it's not going to help you as a kid enjoy the book. So you know, it's an important... It's, it's addition by subtraction. It, it, no, it totally is. And the funny thing about that, I, I think the story in general, my biggest complaint about... Oh, I have two, like, two visual complaints uh, as the story is televised. Number one is the, the scene where everything's going crazy in, 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 the, in the fascist world, right? And um, Benton goes out to to, to, to to get his troops going, right? And they're just like literally laying down. There's like four dudes laying down. The world, everything's literally going to hell. <laughs> yeah. And they're just sitting there calmly smoking <laughs> cigarettes. And you know what? Dix corrected that too. He did. He, huh. just, he just says, he, he, Benton got out, it's like a single paragraph, maybe two lines. He says, he says something like, Benton gets his troops in order. Didn't, didn't have them lying down on the job, because it just doesn't make sense as televised. Right. That's all. And the other thing is, you know, we just already talked about the whole Keith accident. You know, they make a big deal, and, you know, the doctor claims that this is how he figures out um, the, 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 the parallels don't have to be exact. Right. When he finds out Keith survives. survives. I get it. I, I get that's an obvious way to do it. But shouldn't he have he figured that out, though, just knowing that Liz became a, a, a section leader rather than a scientist? I, I think he should have known that right there and then. He should, okay, 
not everything is congruent here. For dramatic reasons. Again, these are not just stories. These have to be told to a very specific format. Dramaturgically, you need that moment in Part 7 where the Doctor has this... The Doctor as as most damaged as we've ever seen him in the entire run of the series in Episode 7. He's seen the world destroyed. He freaks out. He tries to destroy the control room with a chair. That's how freaked out he is. <laughs> we've never seen the Doctor that wounded before. He has to have that moment of euphoria. I'm not. I'm not saying he needs you're some wrong. new revelation delivered to him in the middle of episode seven to give him that euphoria. And Christopher Benjamin, speaking of your greatest Doctor Who stories yes. ever, Christopher Benjamin is also the thing about Talons. So to give him the big emotional moment is great because he's a terrific actor. And Big Finish got what sixteen seasons out of Christopher Benjamin. Uh, that, I'm not a Big Finish guy, so I don't know. I guess you they did like correct. sixteen seasons of Jago and Lightfoot. Lightfoot. Yeah, and yeah. even after Trevor Baxter passed away, they kept going with Christopher Benjamin only. Oh my God! So he's as much a part of Doctor Who as John Levine. Oh, uh, more so. <laughs> yeah, as, yeah, he's he's amazing. I mean, all, all these guys in the seventies who record, like I said, you know, John Bennett and just. Just, just a great you know, uh, Michael Wisher can't can't leave him off the list. My mother is a huge Broadway person because she was raised on Broadway. Her father would take her all the time. Mm-hmm. She and her sister would go to Broadway shows every few months, seventies, eight. I recall her coming back from seeing Sweeney Todd in 1978 or whenever it came out. I was two years ago. Didn't see it on Broadway until this year with with Josh Groban. My mother saw Speed the Plow on Broadway in 1990. And she comes home from a matinee with a playbill with Christopher Benjamin's name on the playbill. I'm like, no way. I wanted to see Christopher Benjamin on stage. She goes, how do you know who that is? Well, let me tell you something. <laughs> You've seen him on a stage before. Uh, <laughs> and crawling under one, too. That's right. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, you know, he's he's a fine actor. Absolutely fine. It's funny, I mentioned John Bennett again. You, I forgot what episode it was. I think a couple of weeks back, you were talking about The House to Drip Blood with John Pertwee. And uh, oh, almost the episode uh, uh, Warriors of the Deep, yeah, with uh, um, what's her name, Hammer. So I'm, I'm blank. Angry Pit. There you go. Well, you know, they co-starred together in one of the segments of that uh, show. But the glue, the the interstitial stuff of the, that's that 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 anthology was John Bennett. He was one of the investigating officers who was trying to figure out what's going on with this house. So they and this and that 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 movie came out the year before John Pertwee assumed the role of Doctor Who. Huh? Watch the movie. It's it's it's, it's one of uh, one of the better uh, Amicus anthologies. Really, really good stuff. So this is ordinarily the part of the show where we play a game. Oh Since, wait a minute, wait a minute! You don't have a game for me. Since I am not on my computer, I was going to do a live version. Of guess that cliffhanger. Well, guess what? I don't want to do that right now. I can imagine. No, no, but we can. But I got a game for you first. You've got a game. Well, we are. I am a guest in your home. I am sitting here in your library. I will play your game, sir. Oh, okay. Unfortunately for the for the listening audience, there is a visual component to it, and it's in the other room. I have to get it. We will pause the recording as you go fetch your visual. No, no, you want that. You want that playing. You can. You can always edit it out, don't you? I can edit it out, of course. Are you still recording? Yes, I am. All right, keep recording, because you're going to want to see this. I'll be right back. I will just tell you, between you, me, and the audience, since David is out of the room now, I'll just tell you guys, I could retire from my job, and I could spend 10 years, 9 to 5, just sitting in this room reading as my retirement job, 
and I would never finish everything in this room. This room is a wonder. Alright, we're talking about the Twilight Zone. One of the greatest Twilight Zone episodes stars William Shatner, but not the one you're thinking. Not Nightmare at 20,000 Feet. His first Twilight Zone is called Nick of Time. He and Patricia Breslin play a young married couple who are driving cross-country on their honeymoon back to New York City. Their car breaks down. The mechanic is Stafford Rep, who is better known as Sergeant O'Hara from Batman, the 1966 series. But this is 1961, so it's before Batman. So Stafford Rep is not speaking in a stilted Irish brogue. <laughs> He's speaking in his regular American accent. He says it'll take an hour to repair the car. William Shatner and his wife go into the diner, and there is one of those fortune teller machines in their booth, and it's got a sadistic-looking devil's head, and it's the one-cent mystic seer. What Barsky has brought into the library is an exact replica of that machine from the Twilight Zone episode Nick of Time. Pretty cool, huh? That is amazing. I may have, so, it might have been a drunk purchase. I don't know. I, I usually do that. No, this is a stone cold sober. This is, if you were a Twilight Zone guy, and we are, this is the kind of thing yeah. you need in your house. I, 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 I couldn't resist. It's awesome. So how does the game work? Well, you've seen the episode. Yes, I have. Well, you got any pennies? I do not have any pennies. Oh, this is 2023, man. I don't carry cash. Well, guess what? I got some pennies for you. All right. Now you got to ask it a question before you put a penny in, of course. Okay. And the penny, I assume, goes here. Penny, penny goes in there and you pull that red lever. Mr. Barsky contends that Talons of Wang Chiang is his is the greatest Doctor Who serial of all time. Is he correct? Pull the lever. You get your card. It has been decided in your favor. <laughs> all right. Score one for David Barsky. <laughs> I am flying back to New York tonight. Is my airplane going to leave on time? That is up to you to find out. Well, that's not helpful. <laughs> Usually, this machine isn't, as as as, as uh, came out in the episode. It was evidence of Shatner and Patricia. Oh, Mystic Seer, this episode's release was delayed by a week because I had COVID. I still have a bit of a hoarse uh, voice and a little bit of a cough, as you can tell, but I appear to be healthy. Will I ever catch COVID again? The answer to that is obvious. <laughs> well, maybe it's more obvious to the machine than it is to me. Well, maybe I should put one in now. Am I going to get COVID from you? Is Barsky going to catch COVID from me? It is quite possible. <laughs> That's good because we all need the immunities. Uh, <laughs> natural immunity will last you about six months. Yeah, well, it's better than nothing, I guess. Is the episode six cliffhanger to Inferno the greatest Doctor Who cliffhanger ever made? The machine is wrong about this. Then we're sending it back. And we are out. We are out. I swear there's more cards in there. We are out of cards. Well, talk about a cliffhanger. Talk about a cliffhanger. (laughs) Let me see this. There are cards in there. They just got jammed. But it, it doesn't want to... Want I think to... the Inferno question broke the machine. Yeah. Because when you're talking to a devil's head about Inferno... Try it again. See what happens. All, all right. right. I've already put in the coin. I've already asked the question. No, you have to put another coin. Uh, put it... Oh. This thing just wants to eat your money. Is Inferno Part 6 the best cliffhanger ever? There yeah. we go. There's a card. It all depends on your point of view. 
That's lame. Well, that's a load of fresh creamery butter. <laughs> Russell T. Davies is back at his next three episodes starring David Tennant as the faux teen doctor. They're going to be airing in November. Will those episodes be any good? Because I have questions. <laughs> you may never know. <laughs> well, that tells me that COVID may get me before those episodes air. Oh, no. That's ominous. All right. David Barsky is booked to appear on this show in another few weeks to discuss a Doctor Who story. Is Terrence Dix the author of the next book that Barsky is going to review on this show? Now, I can see the book because you have it on your end table over there next to your TARDIS. But the devil can't see it because he's facing me. Is Barsky's next Doctor Who literature book a Terrence Dix classic? It has already been taken care of. Well, yes, it has, because the book's sitting right there. He's so obtuse, this Satan. So that's two clear answers, and that's five maybes. All right. That's not a good use of your seven cents, man. Hopefully you have a key to get it back. I thought you had the key. No, I don't have the key, man. I thought you had the key. (laughs) Well, you know what? The greatest thing, it actually really dispenses napkins. That's because, yeah, in the TV series, it was a napkin dispenser. Yeah, isn't that great? I think I put ones that are too big in there, because they come out too easily. Yeah. They rip I gotta get better napkins for this. Yeah, you've got to get the actual 1960s uh, yeah. little white napkins that they used at the diners. But isn't that cool? That is very cool. I love it. And Mrs. Barsky doesn't object to this uh, taking up space in her home. She hasn't seen it yet. Uh, <laughs> hopefully, she's not a listener. <laughs> All right. Well, now that you've gamed me, we're gonna do 20 questions. All right. 20 questions live. I'm gonna pause while I pick a story. And we are now going to play a live version of 20 Questions following the spectacular flame-out of Old Nick. I am one Doctor Who serial from 1963 to the present. Using 20 yes or no questions, you will guess which story I am. Your first question, sir. Well, I'm going to... Can I call this question zero? You can try. We'll see if I accept it. I just want to know if I can use the Mystic Seer to help me out. Of course you can. <laughs> I would expect nothing less. <laughs> I don't think he's going to be much of a help. I don't think he's much of a help. Uh, you know, you know, I'm going to go for the go for the gold here. I mean, why not? You know, I've done this enough times, right? You're going to try and get it in one, aren't you? I, I have to. I have to because so, the record is like three or something. What is it? The record. The record is uh, the record is four. Four. Yeah. Okay. And I will say that I do have a classic. Doctor Who author who's coming up on this show in the next several weeks and that author is desperate to play 20 questions mm. and I'm curious what their first question is going to be because it might well be their own story yeah. you have no such in what is your first guess going to be uh, is it full circle <laughs> <laughs> oh you have stolen somebody's thunder my friend <laughs> no it is not full circle question two alright uh, is it a classic Doctor Who circle it is a classic Doctor Who story. Is it a black and white story? Question three, is it a black and white? It is not a black and white story. So now you're down to the 70s or 80s. Question four. Is it a 1980s story? It is a 1980s story. Question five. Is it a Peter Davison story? It is not a Peter Davison story. Question six. Is it a McCoy story? Ooh, you skipped Colin Baker. Yes, it is a McCoy story. Question seven, which is appropriate because McCoy was number seven. Yep. Uh, Unless you're a Chris Chibnall fan. Yeah. Then he was number X. Is Mel the Companion? 
Yes, it is a male story. Question eight. <clears throat> and now you're going to win because there's only four possible choices and you have 12 questions left. Yeah. 13, I should say. Is it Paradise Towers? It is not Paradise Towers. Question nine. Is it Time of the Rain? It is not Time of the Rain. Oh, failing miserably here. Um, Question ten. Getting into Bill Evenson territory here. No, don't insult me. Ha! Uh, no, question 19 is Bill Evenson territory. Yeah, that's terrible. 10 oh. is fair to middling. Was it Dragonfire? It is Dragonfire. Dragonfire happens to be my least favorite classic Doctor Who story of all time. Now, this surprises me, and I'll tell you why. Why? We are sitting here in the David Barsky... What do you call your library? I know you have, you have, you have tags for your books. What, what's the name of it? I call it the library. No, no. I don't know. You, you, you showed me your books. Oh, have, the books Fantastic have... Film Reference Library. Yes, because you're, yes. Yes. Your, your books are literally tagged, the Fantastic Film Reference Library. That's true. Yeah. Dragonfire is an encyclopedia of classic film because every character is named for a film figure. I know this. I know this. So what? That's a nerd thing. You know, well, I guess I am a nerd, but. What are we doing here? I know, exactly. Uh, I don't know. It's. Ugh, it's terrible. It's terrible. <laughs> I was going to say Time of the Ronnie is terrible. No, Time of the Ronnie I can at least laugh at and enjoy things, you know. I And I I, I, I find value in some of the special effects, but believe it or not, I think are pretty darn good. That's actually, Andrew Morgan was a good director. Yeah, not the bees, but... Um, no, not like, the bees, not the bees. Yeah, the bees insert, are the, the, insert Nicolas Cage audio clip here. Right. Uh, but, you know, uh, the Tetraps and the Bubbles and all that. So that's great stuff. I, I, it's, and it's a fun, stupid movie. Uh, stupid, stupid serial. I, I, it's not the worst. I mean, it was a transitional period. I could find forgiveness in some of the things that happened in that serial. But mm, Dragonfire just can't mind by. Dragonfire is really the beginning of the Cartmel master plan because it's the first story that introduces the idea that Ace is there for a specific reason and that something's going on in the Doctor's background. I, I get it. Of course, I, that was a, the whole the whole ace thing was a retcon, I think. But it really it really oh, begins. Yeah. I mean, Andrew says there was no master plan. He never had one, and he 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 says that. I mean, that is a, is a is a fan theory. He might have gone in a direction he doesn't understand what master plan means. <laughs> but but listen, what followed after the the the, the two seasons after were, were far superior, obviously. And I just think he's still finding his way as as, as a kid who didn't know how to operate in television, really. Um, but once he found some real real great authors uh, to, to contribute to the series and, and found his footing uh, with Ace, particularly, and, and, a, and a doctor who was understanding the role as well, an actor who was understanding the role of the doctor, I should say, it was great. I, I, I loved the last two serials, the so last, you, two, last two seasons. So we're sitting here in your library. You've given me a machine that tells me that it is quite possible that I may croak. <laughs> and you've told me that the story that I've picked for your 20 questions is your least favorite story ever. It's uh, it's an ominous day, Jason. Not having a very good day here, folks. Uh, I'm having a great time. We're talking about Infernal. That's why we're here today. Exactly. Well, we're going to have you back for another fiery story in a few weeks. Regrettably, you didn't finish the book on time, so we're not going to record that one live. That'll uh, be recorded oh, remotely. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I can't. Well, you want me to do two in a day? What do you think? I'm some sort of genius? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, man. No, uh, yeah, apologies to the audience. I didn't realize when I chose, I started after I did my three Tom Bakers, I guess I wanted to do one for every doctor. One for each. Uh, I got a couple clusters, you know, including this one, but I think I even got a closer one coming up later. We also have to work around your schedule because you're not always in town. You're often on the road making uh, classic yeah. television. I uh, I don't know about that part, but... 
I, I literally got like it was funny. I knew you were coming out here, and I was like, oh, I'm hoping in town, jo- ha, 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 joking. And of course, I left town all last week, and you know, uh, you you were going to come out here last week, and well, because of my COVID, I missed the first five days of my own vacation. Yeah, well, but I am here. That's the tragedy. Of it. But I just got home two days ago on Monday, and this is now Wednesday, and I'm glad it all worked out. I'm so, I'm so thankful you came out. I love showing my library to people who appreciate. It. I honestly, from the Doctor Who sphere, I. Uh, who else has been out here? Oh, uh, Stacy has been here twice, I believe. Oh, wow! In an earlier incarnation of hers, uh, albeit, but uh, still, uh, yeah, she had she had a colleague that lived nearby, and she'd come by, and we'd go to lunch. And you know, Stacy has colleagues everywhere. Yeah, of course. Uh, and uh, <laughs> not a, not a guest on your show, but actually made a cameo. Warren Fry actually has been here. Warren Fry cameoed in my live at Gallifrey episode in February, Enemy of the World. Uh, that was with Stacy, though, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, that was funny. Yeah, no, Warren stayed here for four days, running up to a galley a few years back, uh, and he's been in the library, of course, and uh, I guess uh, other than those two... Oh, you know, interestingly, uh, Bill Evans' co-host on his Frankenstein Minute podcast, Tom Lang, he's been here. Huh. Well, but, you know, because he's a huge horror fan. And you have been on the Frankenstein Minute podcast. Yes. I have I, played one of your episodes. Y- yes, I have. Uh, Bill Evanson. My wife won't let him in this house, so you'll never. See <laughs> <that>. <laughs> well, I'm glad I passed the cut. <laughs> of course, anytime, Jason. I'd love to have you back. Anyway. Man, this was a pleasure. And thanks for making a hike. I know it's. I'm kind of out in the boonies here. Um, it's. I love it out here. You know, all the west. Hey, you see the mountains behind our house and all. That? I know. We were admiring uh, on the drive down. Yeah. No. I mean, a lot of the westerns. Uh, we're driving. The... We're driving into the valley, heading mm. literally down, down into the floor. This is literally. This is a town called Chatsworth. <laughs> Um, a lot of the westerns from the 40s and 50s uh, were shot out here back when there was nothing out here. We passed Porter Ranch on the way down. Yep. Uh, and uh, this is la- actually the last town in Los Angeles before you go into Simi Valley and another uh, another county. Actually, and far as, there was actually right up in that hill uh, a classic Star Trek uh, episode was filmed. Uh you can't get to the site now. It's private property now. Uh, a private little war with uh, the Mugatu. Yes. Yeah. That was that was their way of uh, explaining Vietnam. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Not one. Not one. Not one of their best. That was a, that's a little heavy handed. No. Uh, yeah. <coughs> I can't remember. Did Roddenberry write that one? No. Don't remember. He he. His stuff was probably the most heavy handed ever. Um, he wasn't even really the uh, showrunner anymore at that point. It would have been Gene Kuhn. Yeah, but yeah, but whatever the case, he he did have involvement in that second season, uh, pending a few things, and he just oh man, I don't know. He's not the best writer. How far are we from Vasquez Rocks? We are uh, approximately thirty-five minutes. Uh, I've I've been there many times. I've hiked there many times. I, I love it there. There's so many nooks and crannies and so many paths out there. Uh, I've, I think I was there two months ago, most recently. I actually took Tom Lang, uh, Bill's co-host, there he, when he was out here, too. Of course, you're referring to um, the uh, the famous Arena episode. And also, uh, Star Trek Picard did an episode there as oh. as homage to uh, of Arena. Bill, yeah. and, Bill and Ted, too, also took place at the Vasquez Rocks. Oh, I did not remember that. Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey did yeah. a scene at Vasquez Rocks. There's a, there's a lot. Uh, um, what was it... Uh, Werewolf, uh, God, what was the name of that? The, the Henry Hall Werewolf movie uh, that Universal did. I can't remember. Uh, there's so many damn things. My mind is broken. Not the 1935 one. Mm, uh, 
yeah. The Universal's first werewolf movie. I yeah, think. yeah. That 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 substituted for the Himalayas. Huh. Did yep. not know that. Yeah, the very opening scenes. That is on my to watch list. Yeah. Oh, it's a great movie. It's a great movie. All right. No. So yeah, this is um. No, no. We lived in Los Angeles, but we were in the eastern end of L.A. County. Where? Uh, Pomona. Oh, Pomona. Okay. Phillips Ranch Diamond Bar. We were right on the right That's in the middle of that. Way out there. Yeah, but it's still Los Angeles County, that's, so that, that's, yeah, barely. That's like I'm barely Los Angeles. Yeah, you're, we, the, you're the exact op- opposite corner, really. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. But we never, we never, we usually didn't come out this far north or west. But we were, again, we were staying in Anaheim, so we were, we, you know, driving down into the valley, mm-hmm. just admiring all the rocky outcroppings and the uh, desert scenery. Oh, I love, love hiking, and I, I, I've hiked all this stuff. And, but and, California is car culture. New York is subway culture. It often takes me an hour to get anywhere by train, so a ninety-minute car ride is nothing. Oh, I can't stand it either way. I, I, I know. I, I hate being in the car. I, I, I avoid the freeways at all costs here. If I have to go down to Santa Monica, I'll go over the mountain and go down to Malibu and then cut over on on the coast. But there's no traffic at the five drive on the five driving to you at one in the afternoon. Not going so, north, no. Apart from the mileage, we had no typical LA traffic yeah. this trip. Yeah, you you may have some issues getting to the airport. Well, actually, no, you're you're doing a red eye. How, what time are you going to be at the airport? Uh, it's a red eye flight. Probably get there at nine. No, you'll be fine. You'll be yeah, fine. yeah. No, this is a, this is a really cool place to live for a lot of They actually shot. I don't know. I, I never saw it, but the Mandalorian was shot up there too in the mountains. Oh wow! Yeah, a bunch of it. Yeah. I never finished the Mandalorian episodes one and two bored me to tears. Yeah, it's just you know it's not my genre. I've never been into the babysitting genre, so I, I, don't, I don't watch it. I mean, I love westerns and people who. Are mad that I don't like the Mandalorian. Tell me it's that I don't understand westerns yet, which is a complete bogus. I understand westerns. I just don't, don't think the Mandalorian is a very good example of the genre. Yeah, it's, I don't think it's a good example of any genre. My biggest problem, and I accept Andor from this. Andor, I think, is the best Star Trek series. Full stop. Uh, a lot of people have said that. I have not watched it. I won't spoil it, but basically, it's three episode arcs. So episodes one through three is a particular arc. Mm-hmm. Four through six is another arc. Episode 7 is transitional. 8 through 10 is another arc. Episodes 4 through 10 of Andor rival any other television science fiction that I've ever seen. Incredible quality. Because even though it takes place in the Star Trek universe, most of the current Star Wars Wars universe... There's a problem right there. I don't know which is which. Most of the series set in the Star Wars universe get their emotional beats from props or quotes from the 1970s. When you're watching The Mandalorian, you're not watching it because you want to see a new story that's well told. You're watching it because, oh, I remember that prop, or oh, that's a sound effect from the movie. So when you're watching The Mandalorian, the big emotional beat in the the teaser to The Mandalorian Episode 1 is that, oh, he has all these people frozen in carbonite in his ship. The problem is that's an emotional beat that doesn't work because it's established in Empire Strikes Back that freezing somebody in carbonite is experimental mm. technology that is used in Lando's industry, but it is not something used by bounty hunters. They do it as an emergency solution. Yep. So in-universe, the actual Mandalorian would not have 20 carbonite frozen corpses on his ship. So it, does, it doesn't doesn't work. And then it's just very, very slow moving, and it's trying to be a Western, but, oh, it's IG-88. That's, that's the big emotional beat. So that doesn't work for me. Member berries. Exactly, but Andor takes place in the actual universe. You have a character who dresses up in a brown suit for a job interview. He puts blue milk in his in his frosted flakes. 
These are actual, real people living under the yoke of the Empire, and these silly references and callbacks aren't there. And when there is a callback, there is a three-episode arc where Andor is imprisoned by the Empire, and that's part of them that turns him into a rebel. When you find out what they are making in that prison, that is a jaw-dropping, incredible moment, but... Because they only do it the one time, it works. That's a reference that works. Whereas the rest of Star Wars TV series are, oh, look at that. Look at that robot. You've seen that robot before. That's R5-D4. He was in 30 seconds of the movie. And now he gets the whole episode. <laughs> so that's why the Star Wars series don't work for me. Because they're coming at it from the wrong direction. Andor is just intent on telling a good story. And it does. That's all you need. That's what comes first. It really does. And people have lost sight of that nowadays in television, unfortunately. Yeah, same with Star Trek Picard. It's all about callbacks and flashbacks and mm -hmm. Easter eggs. I just want to see a good story. Inferno is a great story. If you were to make Inferno now, it would all be about references to the original rather than just telling its own story. Oh, yeah. I can't wait till RTD brings the Prime Lords back. I think he should. <laughs> and he should have John Levine play a Prime Lord. Prime Lord. All right, Barsky, this was a great time. Let's go grab lunch. Okay. Doctor Who, Inferno, by Terence Dix, televised as Inferno, teleplay by Don Houghton, televised in May and June 1970, paperback release date October 18, 1984, target book number 89, cover artist Nick Spender. Inferno is the name of a top-secret drilling project to penetrate the Earth's crust and release a major new energy source. A crisis develops when a noxious liquid leaks out as drilling progresses. The green poison has a grotesquely debilitating effect on human beings. As the Earth's plight worsens, the Doctor is trapped in a parallel world, unable to rescue the planet and its inhabitants from the destructive forces of... Inferno. Childhood memories. Nothing is stronger. When John Nathan Turner warned that the memory cheats or, to quote Billy Joel, slightly more prosaically in Keeping the Faith, the good old days aren't always good. I first encountered Inferno as a child, and is one of my signal Doctor Who memories. The book came out October 1984, just before I started watching the show, like days before, though I wouldn't start collecting the books myself until late January 1985, and don't recall buying Inferno until later that year. As I mentioned to Barsky earlier, we did a family vacation in Manhattan over winter break 1985. I will discuss that in a lot more detail in episodes 98 and 99 a few months from now. Inferno was the book I brought to read on that trip, which involved staying at the Grand Hyatt on East 42nd Street next door to Grand Central Station. By the way, the Grand Hyatt, formerly the Commodore Hotel, was renovated by Donald Trump in the late 70s, and if you ever want to read a master class on tax, fraud, and grift, read up on the history of what happened to that hotel, which is still in business as the Hyatt Grand Central, though under much reduced circumstances and not for much longer. But Inferno the book positively sang to me. This cover, oh, this cover. In publication order, Nick Spender's second straight painting, miles ahead, at least for me, of the Aztecs. This is the end of the world. Mutating scientist, green scorch marks on white lab coat, smoke rising from Project Inferno behind him. 
He's up on a gantry, a prelude to a pretty epic TV stunt fall. And behind him, from bottom to top, is grayish smoke, yellow flames, and a bright orange sky. The neon tube logo is a slightly deeper shade of orange, and thus blends perfectly into the background. The spine and back cover are also orange, and remember, I am from the 70s, so burnt orange still sets my heart aflutter. Well, burnt orange and chocolate brown. The prevailing color scheme in every American rec room basement from the late 70s, burnt orange as in shag carpeting, and chocolate brown as in wood paneled walls. And it wasn't just the cover. In my childhood memory, this was Terence Dix's magnum opus, a terrifying story told at breakneck speed and nary a wasted word. Kind of a surprise to pick the book up after a long time and realize that it's just 120 pages to cover a seven-part TV story, the shortest I think of these season seven novelizations, and right down there with the war games in terms of the smallest page count to TV episodes ratio. I loved this book as a kid, read it over and over, and acted it out when home alone again and again, along with Web of Fear, episode 24 of this podcast, State of Decay, episode 66, Mind of Evil, coming up soon, the novelizations I most loved to read aloud. I would have first seen Inferno on TV in early 1985, very soon after becoming a fan, when New Jersey Network, channel 26 on our cable system, got the Pertwee package. Remember, we had a 30-channel cable box, of which six buttons were PBS stations. The Pertwee episodes aired in movie format, starting 11 p.m. on Saturday nights, and being only 11 years old, I didn't always get to the end of every episode. Fell asleep during episode 3 of Silurians, only saw 15 seconds of Ambassadors of Death the first time around because my mom... Well, she wanted to watch something on Channel 13, the Newark PBS station, which showed nothing but news and British costume dramas, well, when Sesame Street wasn't on. Back to the subject of Billy Joel, Channel 13 gets a shout-out in pressure. All your life is Channel 13, Sesame Street. What does it mean? What does it mean indeed? I only got to watch the first hour of Inferno that night, best as I can recall, but that hour made me a fan for life. I'm pretty sure it's the first Doctor Who story that I ever dreamed. Green slime, mutating scientists, a science experiment gone dreadfully wrong, and the Pertwee Doctor who sang Rigoletto, which I already knew because my parents had bought a Pavarotti vinyl box set around the same time, and La Donna Mobile was quickly dubbed a cassette and played on just about every car ride we took every single weekend in the mid-80s. Not to mention that the book was released overlapping the 1984 Baseball World Series. That was the first World Series of which I watched just about every pitch. For convoluted reasons having to do with the Mets having lost their division to the hated Chicago Cubs, I was rooting for the San Diego Padres that year, and they did not do well in the World Series at all. For more about me and the 1984 Mets, tune into episode 17 of this podcast, The Three Doctors. That World Series, all five games of it, was played in 1984. By 1985, I'd forgotten baseball entirely and didn't watch baseball again until 1987, but I can still tell you the outcome of just about every inning of every game in the 84 World Series. October 1984, baseball, Inferno, PBS, John Pertwee, family vacation to the Grand Hyatt in Manhattan, Pavarotti, all these things fused together in my mind, as if scorched together 
by green dish soap. All of which is a very long way of saying, I'm desperate to see if this book still holds up. Terence is usually at his best when he goes long. Talons of Wang Chiang and Spearhead from Space, for example, were both way longer than 120 pages. And those books were extraordinary. This is Terence's first John Pertwee novelization in almost four years, since Monster of Peladon, episode 62. The first page is Terence's typical epic world-building. Quote, The government, hypnotized by the force and conviction of Professor Stallman's arguments, dazzled by the prospect of economic problems solved forever, poured money and resources into the project. There was a sort of unspoken agreement. The Stallman project had to succeed. Now the project was nearing completion. And Terence's famous description of Pertwee appears on the same page, quote, He was an odd-looking fellow, this scientific advisor, tall and thin and beaky-nosed, with an old-slash-young face, and a mane of prematurely white hair. Though not technically speaking in Season 7, this story was made pre-Buffon. Back to the page. He was dressed oddly, too, in ruffled shirt, an elegant velvet smoking jacket, the ensemble completed by a long, flowing cape. On page 10, Terence gets into the scripts act, prefiguring Stallman's eventual fate. Quote, There was something almost primitive about the man's bulky, broad-shouldered body and massive, close-cropped head, the neatly trimmed beard thrust aggressively forward. He looked like a gorilla in a lab coat, reflected Sir Keith, immediately ashamed of the uncharitable thought. Every character gets a neat introduction in the early chapters, even minor parts like the doomed Slocum and Bromley. Petra Williams, played on TV by director Douglas Campfield's wife, gets the same pleasant, open face that Peter Davison also had on the same calendar year's Fifth Doctor novelizations. Terence adds backstory to Stallman, who, quote, had grown up in the ruins of post-war Germany. To have reached his present eminence must have taken years of terrible struggle against unimaginable difficulties. On page 16, Derek Newark's character, the last major guest character to be introduced, has a, quote, pleasantly ugly face. On page 19, though, Terence seems at a loss about what to do with Liz Shaw and what's her last TV story, although fortunately not her last novelization. Quote, she was a serious-looking girl with reddish-brown hair. She wore a severely cut blue jacket, a rather incongruously frivolous-looking miniskirt, and a bright red blouse. Say what now? Girl, she has multiple degrees. She's a doctor like seven times over. Still, Terence adapts 99% of episode one, minus a couple of stray words of probably ad-lib dialogue, in a compact 18 pages. Douglas Camfield, probably pound-for-pound pound classic who's best director, though Martinez and Maloney and Harper are high up in the conversation, as are others, Michael Ferguson. Inferno moves at breakneck pace with lots of short intercut scenes and film inserts. They must have been a nightmare for the vision mixer, up in the control room on recording day. The Doctor and the Brigadier battling mutants, high atop the big cooling tower, is an iconic moment in episode 2. But while writing the book, Terence has to grapple with the fact that, in-universe, there was no reason for the characters to be up there. So Terence gives us one. Page 28, quote, The Brigadier looked round, confident that from such a vantage point, they could not possibly be overheard. Terence also adds a quick aside about the Krakatoa reference. Then please, here's my own reference, read Simon Winchester's 2003 book on Krakatoa. Also, page 28, quote, some of the natives believe that the volcano had a kind of evil spirit, that it was alive. Now, that's probably not true. I don't recall Winchester mentioning that in the book. 
but this is the fun kind of embellishment you get in a book aimed at the younger reader of 1984, most of whom grew up to become compulsive Winchester readers 20 years later. Or at least I did. Speaking of how Terence enjoys getting into the head of the reader, Chapter 4 sees the Doctor observe Stallman's act of sabotage to the project computer, and in his own head exclaims, Jumping Jehoshaphat! And all the Episode 2 material takes up two chapters out of the book's 15, same number of chapters as the Episode 1 material, but Episode 2 consumes just 15 pages of text. The chapter again contains everything from TV, minus a few stray words, although Terence turns TV's Venusian Karate into Venusian Aikido. Chapter 5 introduces us to the Doctor Who concept of the multiverse, at a time when this wasn't really a thing in TV science fiction. Twilight Zone dabbled in it, the parallel, a world of difference, and Mirror Image, which inspired the Jordan Peele movie Us, not to mention Star Trek TOS's Mirror Image. But Terrence shows the TARDIS console splitting off into multiple realities and quickly makes clear that the Doctor's hut is not the Doctor's hut. Bottom of page 42. For what seemed a very long time, the Doctor had been whirling helplessly in some kind of limbo, a place where not only time and space, but the fabric of reality itself seemed to be distorted. He felt as if he was being split off, so that there were not one but ten, a hundred, a thousand, a million Doctors, with a million TARDIS consoles and a million Bessies to go with them. Suddenly, he hit the ground with a jolt, and opened his eyes. He was back in his hut. The place was the same, and yet it was different. Wonderingly, the doctor looked around him. To begin with, it was neat, an unlikely state of affairs where the doctor was concerned. He liked a bit of clutter. The hut, this hut, was fanatically, meticulously tidy, like an army barrack room on the eve of inspection. In fact, the whole place had a distinctly military air. The wall shelves that had formerly been piled high with the doctor's books and papers and journals and scientific instruments now held nothing but rows of metal boxes labeled according to some kind of code. Walls and floor were spotless. There was a large poster fixed to the wall beside the door. It showed a thin-faced, rather cruel-looking man with a neatly trimmed mustache. Beneath the picture there was a slogan, Unity is Strength. Beneath it with a symbol, three arrows radiating from a common hub. The book accelerates when covering the episodes 3 through 6 material, Terence omitting the sequences in each episode which flash sideways to what's happening in the real world. All of Sir Keith's scenes leading up to his fatal, or his near-fatal, motor vehicle accident are cut out of the book, for example, but Terence still has time to pay observational humor to what's left. Page 52, quote, The doctor was standing in front of the brigade leader's desk, Benton at his elbow. There was an armed sentry at the door. The brigade leader was sorting through his papers, pretending that the doctor wasn't there. It was, thought the doctor, one of the oldest interrogation techniques in the book. The doctor, however, was getting bored. And page 53 has one of, well, probably Terence's greatest paragraph of them all, setting aside his many classic opening sentences. His long paragraph describing how this fascist parallel England came to be. The doctor fell silent, wondering just what had happened to alter the history of England so drastically. Perhaps the English had lost the Second World War. Or perhaps there had never been a Second World War. Not for England, that is. Plenty of people had wanted to make peace with Hitler in 1939, and again in 1940, after Dunkirk. Perhaps in this world they had succeeded. England had kept out of the war, the Americans had stayed neutral, and Hitler was left to rule the Europe he had conquered. Then, sooner or later, the fascists in England would have staged a coup 
and set up a fascist state in the style of their Nazi friends. That was it, decided the doctor. Not foreign invaders, but fascism of the homegrown variety. So there's not a lot of extraneous detail. The prose is as breathless as Camfield's meticulous direction, but the few extra added bits are golden. And even with several TV scenes missing, Terence finds time to include some new dialogue, perhaps scripted for TV but cut, about the doctor going with the King of England to Maxims in Paris, Maxims later referenced on screen in the Great City of Death, or about Benton and the Parallel World being called Platoon under Leader Benton. Speaking of which, while we all have our John Levine stories, Douglas Canfield was a thousand percent right to elevate him from monster performer to main character. Nasty Benton gets a cliffhanger all to himself, the great honor. TV's episode three, and John Levine is superb as Benton's evil self. What do you think you're doing? Trying to find a particular microcircuit. I may be able to repair your computer for you. Outside. We've got a firing squad waiting for you. You idiot, if I don't repair this computer, you're the Look! Are you coming with me quietly, or do I shoot you here and now? Chapter 7 is the interrogation of the Doctor by the Brigade Leader and Section Leader Shaw. Camfield's camera script portrays this with rapid cutting. Terence does much the same in print. With one interesting difference, the Doctor invokes the name of God at Professor Stallman on TV, replaced in the book with a much more interesting observation in print, quote, I think this terrible compulsion to reach penetration zero is part of that sickness, a much better line. Shame it's not on TV. Chapter 8 adds very little internal thought processes to the action, but the episode 4 cliffhanger is one of the towering achievements of Doctor Who, and Terence writes it exactly as done on TV. Zero minus 40 seconds. You must stop this countdown before it's too late. Do you hear me? You must stop it. Get later. Shoot that man now. You can't do that. It's just murder. If you break through the Earth's crust now, your release forces you never dreamed could exist. Page 77, the doctor practices not only Venusian Aikido on an enraged Professor Stallman, but also Martian Karate as well. That's a pretty nifty bit of forgotten Doctor Who lore. We've heard plenty about the third doctor's affinity for Venusian martial arts, but not so much the Martian. On page 81, Terence takes a little bit of time to get into the heads of the nameless, speechless characters played by extras to give us an in-universe look at what the end of the world on this parallel fascist earth really means, quote, numbly they obeyed Benton's commands, hoping desperately that somehow obeying orders, not thinking, would save them. The shortening of the book in comparison to the TV is most notable in episodes 5 and 6, a long Greg and Petra scene from episode 5 about the end of the world is reduced to three short paragraphs, bottom of page 
81 to the top of page 82. Although, interestingly, Terence keeps the scene where John Pertwee plays a radio announcer, cut for UK broadcast, not listed in Chrissy's online episode transcript, though that scene was kept for the North American release, and I had it on my 1990 off-air VHS copy. I had taped the William Hartnell episodes in 1987, but nothing else, and then I started a quote-unquote Best of Doctor Who collection when my local PBS started re-airing the Pertwees in June 1990. Volume 1 was Ambassadors of Death, and this, all 14 episodes on one six-hour cassette in super long play format. Boy, do I miss that cassette, even though Ambassadors was still in black and white, and even though a Blu-ray Season 7 collection must surely be coming soon please? There's a really effective but callous sentence on page 87, as fascist Benton is mutated by the Stallman creature. Quote, he, the doctor, could do nothing to save Benton, but his fate made a useful diversion. Otherwise, there's not a whole lot of TV's episode 5 and the corresponding book passages, chapters 9 and 10. It takes up just 14 pages, a second Petra Gregg scene cut that would have taken place in between the chapter 9-10 break, then the Sir Keith scene, back on real Earth, setting up his car crash. Episode 6 is similarly condensed, just 15 pages, chapters 11 and 12. The three-scene sequence set back on real Earth is entirely missing. It means we're missing out the clever bit where Professor Stallman, quote-unquote our Stallman, not yet mutated, refers to the unit troops as, quote, ape-like minions, which is exactly what they became on parallel fascist Earth by that point in the narrative. There aren't many plot holes or scripted implausibilities in Inferno, if you accept the parallel dimension thing as real, but Terence does signpost that it's unlikely for Greg Sutton to be able to run outside in the nightmarish, apocalyptic hellscape between buildings without running into head-craving mutants. Somehow, he writes, page 100, somehow he succeeded in avoiding the wandering mutants. Again, there's not a lot of extra room for authorial voice in episodes 5 and 6, but Terence returns to the image of the mythical Indonesian savage. As the mutants die in the final fascist Earth explosion, page 102, quote, The air was filled with the dying screams of the mutants, who had been huddled around the complex and were now devoured, like fiery sacrifices to their savage god. Terence slightly rearranges the episode 6 cliffhanger. On TV, we don't know if the Doctor escapes as the CSO lava flow approaches our heroes huddled in the hut, but in the book, Terence does make clear that the Doctor and Bessie made it out in time. And this is where I find the biggest fault with the book, if you can call it a fault, because this is about 15 to 20 pages below Target's typical maximum word count back in the day, and because Terence did a lot of 135 to 140 page books in the late 70s, you could only imagine what he could have done with those extra 15 pages. We get nothing on the Brigade Leader. Oh, there's the joke about, I can see why I agree that mustache, but Terence could have dipped into the third doctor's head and explained to us just why this fascist brigade leader is so frightening, first as a ruthless man of action, and then as a terrified bully who doesn't want to die. Terence has been around, Terence had been around the production office almost since Nicholas Courtney's first appearance as Colonel Lethbridge Stewart, and he even novelized that debut appearance in Doctor Who and the Web of Fear, episode 24, over on Twitter, Ian McIntyre has pointed out that the Colonel, in Web of Fear, exhibited some of the same character traits to those of the Brigade leader, most notably hoping to commandeer the Doctor's TARDIS to escape from the Yeti-infested underground. 
Terence could easily have leaned into this, had the book been longer. We also don't get any scenes from section leader Shaw's point of view. She murders her superior on page 102, or at least shoots to maim, but we never get the moment showing why she breaks faith with her own government and sides with the doctor's agent of chaos instead. Of course, to say all this is to criticize the book for what it doesn't do, rather than evaluate what it does do. Fortunately, what it does, it does very, very well. Sometimes Terence says in one sentence what other writers would need three pages to say. Page 115, quote, The doctor's mind was filled with seas of glowing lava, with the terrible spectacle of a world destroyed. For a book this brief, that's a pretty powerful sentence in context. Chapter 13's title is a funny inversion on our usual favorite Terence chapter title. It's called Return to Danger, rather than Escape to. The first page and a half condenses all the real-world scenes that Terence deleted from the episodes 5 and 6 material. In chapter 14, Terence removes the reference to the doctor calling the brigadier brigade leader, a slightly missed opportunity. Interestingly, though, he adds a brief moment for chapter 13, probably scripted for TV and then not filmed or deleted in the edit, or maybe just added to cover a seeming plot hole, where Greg Sutton overhears that the doctor has returned to danger. In chapter 14, as on TV, Sutton mentioned that he's heard this. Terence gives us the earlier moment where he did hear it. The plot resolution speeds by in chapter 15, but Terence does take some time out to pay a brief and kind of touching eulogy to the dead Professor Stallman from this universe and all our dead allies from the other. Page 123. The doctor moved over to Stallman's body and stared down at it for a moment. Perhaps they owed him a debt in a way, he thought, thanks to Stallman's urgent need to surrender to the ecstasy of the recessive mutation, Earth, this Earth had been saved. The doctor looked at the little group of his friends, laughing and talking, on the other side of the control room. Pain showed on his face for a moment, as he thought of their other selves, those who had not survived. For a moment, it was like looking at ghosts. Page 126, the final page. Gotta say, as complimentary as I've been on the rest of this essay, this is a rushed ending. No proper goodbye for Liz, even 14 years after Carol and John's departure. But the story leaves an incredible legacy. And I like to think that the strength of the story leans as much on people's memories of the novelization as it does on their memories of the 1970 TV serial. The past Doctor Adventure, The Face of the Enemy, revisits Inferno in pretty neat detail, and the missing adventure, Scales of Injustice, by friend of the podcast, Gary Russell, does give us a final Season 7 story with a Liz Shaw departure moment. This is a phenomenal book, but as great as it is, and I think it really deserves a place on Terrence's top 10 targets, it's still missing something. And that just shows you the strength of Terence's writing. A book with hardly a wasted word. A book at 120 pages that effortlessly captures the intensity of Douglas Camfield's direction. You can still say the book is missing something. It is, but it isn't. Next time on Doctor Who Literature, we remain in the past and jump back to Season 4 to the final 1960s historical. We are going to Scotland 
we are going to live the TV series Outlander 50 years early. We are going to 1746. We are going to the second Doctor and Ben and Polly meeting one of our greatest Doctor Who friends of the 1960s for the first time. Joining me, haven't spoken to him in a long time, Daniel Knight making his third appearance on this show. He has been to Scotland to do some research for this episode, and he is going to have a thing or two to tell us about Doctor Who, the Highlanders. Thank you for joining me on another episode of the Doctor Who Literature Podcast. This podcast is produced by David Barsky, Jim Sangster, and yours truly. This week's episode was written and edited by me. Our logo was designed by Jim Sangster. Special thanks to my special guest, David Barsky. This podcast can be found on most of your podcast apps of choice. You can find all past episodes at podcasters.spotify.com slash pod slash show slash Doctor Who Lit. It really helps if you rate five stars and subscribe. You can find me on Twitter at Doctor Who Novels, that's DR Who Novels, on Mastodon at DR Who Novels at Mastodon.social, and on email at Doctor Who Literature, that's DR Who Literature at gmail.com. Please drop me a line with your comments, questions, and suggestions. Thank you for listening, and whatever you do, keep turning the pages. Doctor Who Podcast Network.